You're listening to Cybersecurity Careers Blog Podcast, hosted by Rob Waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first cybercareers.blog radio podcast. I'm your host, Rob Waters, and I'm really excited to be here today with everybody. I want to thank you for your time. I understand that everyone has plenty of choices when it comes to listening to podcasts, and we're excited to have you listening to us right now. So right now, what I want to do is just go ahead and kind of give everyone a little bit of a background and context of who I am. So my name is Rob Waters, and by day, I am a customer engineer supporting the Department of Defense and some federal agencies with Google and want to make clear that anything that I am discussing on this podcast is my own opinion. Uh, None of it is endorsed by Google, Google Cloud. Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of them whatsoever. This is all in my personal capacity as a just individual cybersecurity enthusiast. But going forward, um, what I want to do is also just kind of share some of my experiences so far um, at Google, as well as other places that I've worked for and customers that I've interacted with. Um, Not gonna violate any kind of NDAs or anything like that, obviously, but I wanna make sure that um, I think there's a lot of valuable information that is um, going to be available through these podcasts in, in, in due time. And, and so what I want to do, and part of the reason why I, I really started this blog to begin with is I, I just feel that the growth and kind of trying to get into cybersecurity is obviously easier now than ever before. I, for context, started out um, really as the very bottom that you could do in terms of cyber. Um, It really wasn't even called cyber yet, actually. It was just information security. And back in 2008, I started out as a Department of Defense contractor uh, doing the very glorious help desk (laughs) for a uh, army base. So if any of you have ever worked for a help desk, uh, you will understand the that kind of experience, right? Uh, it's it's definitely a, a, a trial by fire. It's a way to quickly expose yourself into the IT world and um, start learning how to deal with people. And usually, when they're not happy, um, so you know that was really a way for me to get my initial hands-on IT experience. And which is something that I just absolutely wanted to do and was craving at the time. Uh, and worked my way up from just doing initial help desk, phone calls, uh, remote support, and so on. And then eventually moved into doing some of the desktop type um, support. So actually going out to individual uh, users, as we would call them, user, users' desks, or you know, whoever needed assistance throughout the base. Um, volunteered for some additional after hours work as well, uh, which really was not fun whatsoever. It was very early in the morning, um, practically a graveyard shift. Um, definitely gave me a lot of sleep deprivation. Um, nobody really wanted to do it. Um, but it paid I want to say like time and a half, something like that. I mean, we're going back quite a ways now, so I can't even really recall exactly what it was paying. Um, But as a, you know, newly grad of, you know, undergrad and and trying to bust my way and knock down doors and go through brick walls in the cyber, you know, field, um, part of the approach that I took was volunteer for, extra assignments and do, you know, do the things that other people just did not want to do. And it really worked quite well for me. And um, that's really how I got my my initial kind of break, if you will, 
was just continuing to do the things that other people didn't want to do. So, you know, whether it was something on the help desk where maybe they didn't want to answer the phone or they didn't want to do certain kind of tickets or something like that. Um, we had plenty of those types of things. Just find a way that you can kind of be valuable to the team and make some sort of an impact. Um, but it's a grind. I'm not going to lie to you. It was a grind. Help desk was a grind every single day. You'd walk into work and there'd usually be some kind of an outage or issue. Um, and sadly, not a lot's changed really from what I've read and kind of listened to and um, getting other people's perspectives of working help desk throughout the years since I graduated, if you will, from that kind of work. Um, not a lot has changed. I mean, the technology has changed, but the fundamental issues, the fundamental job life, if you will, really hasn't changed. Um, so I did that for a few years and um, at the same time, the base was really getting ready to shut down and there was a lot of different kind of exits that people were taking at the time. Some were going into you know full private industry having nothing to do with Department of Defense. Others were doing um, moves to different states uh, others were just, you know, maybe even getting out of IT altogether. But an opportunity for me and something that I wanted to do at that point was, you know, this is now 2011 and I really wanted to get into the hands-on IT full-time and really started to develop a passion for networking. Part of that requirement though you know, and at this time I had kind of that triad of CompTIA certifications, which was A+, Network+, Security+. Um, half the reason was because it was my own just kind of desire. But then the other reason was, especially for uh, Security+, it was due to con contractual requirements with the DOD company that I was working with. And you know, just really started to develop my passion for networking. And they had said, you know, hey, go get your CCNA. And that was the first that I really kind of was told that kind of information was go get your CCNA um, because I wanted to become a network engineer at that point. And it was funny because I was talking to the recruiter who was trying to put together my package to um, basically relocate from New Jersey down to Maryland and they're like you know we'll we'll touch base we'll keep going at this um, but you know maybe uh, maybe come a couple months you'll get your CCNA and you know as I'm starting to go and learn th for my CCNA it was just completely overwhelming you're trying to learn everything on a much more difficult scale um, anyone who's kind of made that leap from studying for CompTIA certifications to now something like Cisco, um, it's not at all a easy progression. It's, it's the natural progression, right, to go from something like CompTIA Network Plus into something more like CCNA. And at the time, really, you could... You could take the CCNA all in one shot, get the certification done in one test, or you can break it into two. And I chose to break it into two. It just seems to be um, more palatable and easier to kind of tackle that way, as opposed to just trying to study for the entire thing, the route and switch components all at once. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not even sure how it's uh, studied or, or, or I should say how, how the exams are, are given anymore. Um, it's been a couple of years now since I've really paid attention to Cisco certifications and the actual studying process, but that was, that was my next move. Get your CCNA. I mean, I felt like my career was contingent upon getting my CCNA. And if I had got my CCNA by the time that I would be able to relocate, which again was about two, three months, um, I would have been able to get a you know sizable pay increase and so on and so forth, but it just was impossible to really kind of jam through that quick. Um, so it ended up taking me, I want to say, 
closer to, I want to say closer to, um, closer to a year to fully get my CCNA because I had essentially passed the switch components of CCNA, but the routing was definitely a lot more challenging trying to understand and learn, you know, BGP, OSPF, RIP, you know, all those different things. Um, EG, IRP. I mean, there, there was just a lot to really kind of unpack and ended up having to take the route portion of that exam twice before finally passing. Um, but it was just kind of, you know, it was a real grind um, because at the same time of trying to get my CCNA, I was moving out um, into a different state. I was kind of working a whole new job, which as everybody knows is extremely stressful. Um, and it, it just really was a grind. Um, but I, I was persistent, kept, kept going through it and was able to really get, get that notch on my belt, so to speak. And, you know, definitely this is something that I'll touch upon in, in future podcasts, but that was kind of my, one of my first kind of feelings, um, of imposter syndrome. And, and I really don't want to say that it was like a full blown imposter syndrome, but really until you get your CCNA, um, you know, the network plus is solid background, but it's, it's just not the full picture whatsoever. And, um, not that a CCNA really is going to make you a so-called expert on route and switch. I mean, that's why they have the CCIE. Um, but when you're in a network engineering role and you don't yet have your CCNA, um, obviously a lot of people out there do not have their CCNA yet, even though they may be a network admin or network engineer. But it just kind of felt like I didn't quite belong yet. Um, you know, my, my coworkers had their CCNA at a minimum. Um, some people had even a CCIE written done. Um, and if anyone out there isn't quite familiar with the progression of Cisco certifications for route switch, it pretty much goes CCNA, which I kind of attribute to like a bachelor's degree in networking. Um, then you have the CCNP, which is network professional, um, which I kind of attribute to a master's level, if you will. And then finally you have this, the CCIE. And the CCIE is kind of the end all be all. You are considered a expert in route switch. So in this case, it would be CCIE route and switch. Um, and there's two parts to the CCIE. There's, there's the written exam and then there's the actual labs. And there's plenty of people out there that pass the written, but you're, you don't technically have a CCIE until you pass the lab. And the lab is absolutely grueling. Um, again, it's easier, I would say, to pass now than it ever has been just because there's so, so many resources online and kind of boot camps and everything else like that to try to get your CCIE or rather any Cisco certification. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you go into a lab and you're trying to pass that lab. It is absolutely grueling. Um, I never even attempted it. It just really kind of I was wanting to go in a different direction in my career. Um, instead of going the, you know, full on expert level CCIE route switch. Um, but that's a, that's a topic for another day. But anyway, um, you know, the network engineering position that I took on was, I would say at that point, you know, now we're in 2011 through 2013. Um, you know, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn. You can certainly see my kind of work history there. Um, but I started to work with, you know, Department of Defense and some of the agencies there uh, quite heavily in the D.C. metro area. And it just really solidified my interest in network engineering, in um, cybersecurity. And again, it was really at that point, you know, now we're at like 2011, 2012, where cyber is really starting to become a thing. Um, and so I decide, you know what, I want to actually get my master's degree in cybersecurity. And so I went and actually started a master's degree program 
at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Um, so, you know, UMBC for anyone who's kind of in the DC metro area. And it's one of the best things I ever did in my career, as well as just kind of individually. Um, I'm really proud of that degree. I'm really proud of my time there as a student. It really solidified a lot of concepts and, and working on different things, um, both in an academic, a philosophical, as well as, you know, kind of real world type scenarios as well. Um, and what I really liked about it is that, and interestingly enough, one of the people that I actually reported to during my day job ended up being in some of my actual same classes at this UMBC master's program for cybersecurity. So, you know, here I'd be reporting to this guy and, you know, calling him sir and, you know, whatever, he was an officer in the Navy. And then I go at night to our class and, you know, I might be in a group working with him or something like that. I mean, just complete role reversal or, you know, suddenly we were on an even playing field and it was just really kind of interesting, but um, definitely very interesting people that uh, were part of that degree program while I was there. Of course, you had the people that were part of the kind of military and industrial complex, as you might want to all call it, or you also had people that were working for some of the federal agencies, um, or you just had people that, you know, really were passionate or interested in cyber and were looking to make a career transition. So they may have been doing something completely different and just were kind of on that early rush of market movement towards cybersecurity, I would call it. Um, but it was really an unbelievable experience. I highly recommend anyone check out uh, Masters in Cybersecurity. Uh, obviously not every program is going to be the same. Um, in fact, you know, now at the time, I should say really undergraduate programs in cyber were pretty much non-existent. Um, even master's degrees in cybersecurity were pretty rare. Um, but that's just obviously completely changed now in the 10 to almost 12 years since this has happened. Um, and for me, it was a way to put myself in an academic environment where you're just completely able to learn, you're able to work in labs, you're able to work in teams, and you're able to kind of work with a lot of different professionals, which I understand today, you know, flash forward 10, 12 years or so, um, you know, the technology and training and everything that's available today is infinitely more than what was available back then. But I still feel that there's significant value in going through a formalized degree program versus just purely self-taught. Um, it's also, if nothing else, going to be something that's going to open doors for you. It's also could be, you know, again, potentially powerful networking as well. So one of the things that I did was volunteer for a cyber defense team. Um, they call them the cyber dogs. And we basically, it was, it was a hacking contest, um, essentially team that we had put together. There were a bunch of different teams and we really, um, really got involved both in the state as well as on a national level. Within the state, we had the Maryland Cyber Challenge, uh, which in the fall of 2012, I was actually a team captain for. So at the time, at the time I was transitioning from working as a DOD contractor to actually getting hired by Cisco. And so because of that kind of real world experience, I, I think I was just kind of looked upon as um, kind of having leading industry experience, maybe compared to some other people, uh, even though I was very much a student of the entire program and, and of the discipline, right? I mean, nobody, nobody knows everything. Nobody's an expert. Um, and, you know, cyber is a very, <laughs> cyber is a very, um, it's, it's, it's a field where you can check your ego real quick because other people will know tremendous amounts of things about cyber, whether it's, you know, red teaming or purple teaming or, 
blue teaming or just general information security or compliance. I mean, there's so many facets to cyber, so no one can possibly know it all. It's just impossible. So even though you might walk into a room and have a lot of knowledge, it doesn't mean that, you know, somebody else doesn't, but anyway, that, that experience being as a team captain, we actually were able to win um, second overall in a state final, um, which was really awesome. It was a um, cyber hacking contest that we had to go through many different rounds to qualify and kind of move up the ranks, so to speak. Um, and then the final was actually held in Baltimore downtown at the convention center. And, you know, here we are using things like Backtrack and Nessus and all these other different types of, you know, kind of InfoSec tools. And we had obviously people from our school and other schools there kind of walking around and checking out everybody working on these teams and, you know, with a big screen showing the scoreboard in real time um, while you're trying to basically red team and then they have the blue team uh, trying to defend against our attacks. But you had these people very much like right out of a movie from federal agencies. Sometimes they would say what agency they're from, sometimes they don't. Um, and they just kind of walk around the room and just watch these teams work in real time and um, essentially recruit you, I think, really, if you wanted to. Um, so that was really just kind of a surreal moment for me. And um, just, again, a really valuable experience that, um, you know, again, back then there, there wasn't these online kind of platforms where you could do, you know, hacking challenges and everything else. It was literally like everyone in the team would have to, you know, download VirtualBox and the, or, you know, whatever, and, you know, manually maybe create images or something like that. Like there was no huge way to like easy way to, to do all this. Um, you know, sitting in labs, physically connecting routers to network switches and things like that and, and firewalls and trying to, you know, kind of learn some things. Um, there, there, it just was so different. Um, and it, we're, believe me, we're better off now than we were back then in terms of the education aspect. But I feel like there was a lot that happened back then that, you know, maybe is not done the same way now with everything just being so virtualized, you know, in terms of like maybe people just hop on a Zoom or something like that. I mean, again, probably a topic for another day. But um, that was just such a great experience. So I'm happy to talk about that more if our listeners decide that they want to hear about it. But kind of transitioning uh, from that degree program. Um, while I was actually a student, so I mentioned that I transitioned from being a DOD contractor to working to Cis uh, with Cisco and you know, kind of getting back to the value of a master's degree is it did help open the doors and help my resume stick out from other people. Uh, again, back then, the fact that you were even in a cybersecurity master's degree was definitely something that was setting you apart. I'm, I'm really trying to think of kind of the equivalent for 2022. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's something about AI and ML or something like that, that even though it's now been out for several years, well, AI and ML technically for decades in different forms, but just being on the heat of the market. Um, yeah, I'm struggling to really come up with an equivalent, but to be honest with you, it just, it just really was right place, right time. Uh, so Cisco goes, goes on and hires me and that continued my career with supporting Department of Defense. Um, but now instead of being a DOD contractor where you're constantly fighting for, you know, being on the next contract, you know, anyone who has worked in kind of the DOD or government contract world knows that your employment is only as secure as the contract that you're attached to. So if your contract is good for a year, 
or two years, then you are you know employed for that length of the contract. But um, you know, as let's say it is two years, maybe you're a year into that contract. I mean, you have to essentially start thinking forward a year and saying, okay, what do I need to do to be competitive in the marketplace? Is there a certification I need to get? Is there companies or things I need to target to try to remain employed? Um, and the scary part is with this kind of world is you don't know if your next contract that you're put on, if you're going to be paid the same amount, you might be paid more, you might be paid less. It's really hard to say, or you might just continue your same exact job, but suddenly instead of working for, you know, contractor A, you're working for contractor B. Um, I've seen that happen plenty of times. So the overall sentiment that I'm trying to get across is that it's very unstable. It's not really something that um, I would recommend unless you are, again, just at that ground level trying to get established and just trying to get any experience you can. And really at the ground level, that's what it's all about. Um, You have to just be willing to put yourself out there, get any experience you can, whether it's, you know, three years, six months, a year, it doesn't matter. You just need something under your belt that you can now have something on your resume for a professional working experience. But making this transition into Cisco was huge. Um, And then that really solidified, again, my focus on networking and then also security. So pretty much, um, you know, part of this overall experience was now kind of focusing much more on the Navy uh, and going from not just a network engineer anymore, but now to a systems engineer. So that's, you know, when we're talking about career progression, right? Um, the timeline now is let's say we're up to about 2016. And so in a matter of about six to eight years, I went from help desk, absolute ground floor, making, you know, 40 some thousand dollars a year, uh, with no experience except for, you know, a couple certifications to get in the door, uh, to, getting into, you know, working some overall special projects, volunteering my extra time, um, and then eventually getting picked up as a network engineer, and then now getting picked up uh, formally under Cisco as a systems engineer. So it, you know, if you're thinking about how do I get from A to A to B or A to C, um, in terms of cyber, I mean, there's many different ways and routes you can go. Uh, but if you want to kind of be kind of more networking focused, I mean, this is really how you're going to do it from the ground floor. Um, most people are not going to jump into the field as a network engineer immediately. So you might be working something like, you know, information systems technician or something like that, which really means probably help desk or desktop team or something like that, remote support, whatever it is, but you're essentially working tickets, support tickets. Um, then as a network engineer, you're actually starting to rack and stack the networking equipment. You're bringing networking gear online, offline, doing, you know, hardware refreshes, configuration changes, all those different things. Um, really valuable experience. And then now you're actually going into a systems engineering role where, you know, instead of just saying and kind of like getting from the customer, like, like as a network engineer, it was, Hey, this has come down from the Navy. They need this stuff installed, replaced, whatever. Needs you to go rack and stack and config these, this equipment. Um, you're never making the decisions like, hey, I think we should have this type of Cisco switch in the architecture or this kind of you know, router or whatever. Um, you're not making those decisions. Whereas as, as a systems engineer, you're working with the customer. And in this case, it was the Navy to say, okay, I hear your requirements, um, but here's what I think is actually best suited for this architecture. And so you, now you're actually trying to influence and change and prescribe really what hardware or software or technologies or protocols or whatever it is, is gonna be within this architecture that ultimately is gonna get pushed down to network engineers and so on and so forth to deploy. 
so that was really kind of a huge step in both career as well as pay, everything else. Um, you know, I can't say enough about that transition and how really huge that was to go from network engineer to systems engineer. And it's definitely not easy. I don't want to make it, you know, gloss over that. Again, how did I get there? It was a combination of certifications. So I already had my CCNA, but now I was getting my CCNP. Uh, I was also getting the design professional, so the CCDP, and also had just other kind of independent studies that I was doing. So that was really how I was kind of making that educational as well as professional growth and changing from a network engineer, you know, hands on the equipment to systems engineer, where yeah, I still have my hands on the equipment, but now it's more of an, an architectural standpoint. Uh, and then, you know, of course, SDN was really hot in the mid 2010s. Um, and so, you know, software defined networking with virtualized switches, routers, everything else. I mean, that was just exploding. Um, so we didn't even really kind of per se need hands on physical equipment anymore. Um, but of course, you know, kind of any systems engineer worth their salt is really going to um, keep some kind of a home lab together. And, and I really, whether it is software or physical, either um, having some kind of access to a home lab and, and again, with it being so many options being virtual now, um, there's no excuse not to have some kind of a home lab where you can test and um, test things, break things, make things work, build things, tear it down, build it again. That's essential to any network or systems engineer. Um, you just need to kind of get in the habit of testing new things, breaking things, building things, tear it down, build it again, make it repeatable. That's that's huge. Kind of going through the rest of my career, um, really I transitioned into wanting to focus solely on security, right? So as a systems engineer at Cisco, I was really kind of a generalist, meaning you have to go a mile wide and maybe an inch deep um, is kind of the saying but you might have some kind of a niche that maybe is security, right? Where you can go really deep and have really deep kind of SME level conversations about. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe other things like voice over IP or telephony, you know, communications, collaboration, you may know enough to get by, but you're gonna have to rely on a specialist to be pulled into the conversation. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to focus solely on security. Cisco being a huge company, it's in, in, incredibly competitive and also just very difficult to move in different roles. Um, and so I made the difficult decision back in 2016 to actually leave Cisco and then I'm going to a pretty hot startup at the time. There was, I mean, maybe 500 employees for Scout Technologies. Um, so Forescout became really huge across the public sector, uh, primarily. It definitely has its foothold in, you know, globally across commercial enterprise, but I'd say public sector is where it really exploded and took off. Um, and so that was a combination of like federal civilian agencies, um, as well as Department of Defense. So if you've ever hold, uh, heard of um, CDM, like the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program or um, Comply to Connect in the Department of Defense world, uh, Forescout is really a, a, a linchpin in that architecture and that design. So securing the devices from the moment they initiate network traffic on your network Forescout is going to see it, and then as they would say, control it, and then orchestrate it. So um, that really just means integrating with other existing tools that maybe you have deployed in your network. So maybe any kind of log information is sent over to Splunk, or maybe um, you're trying to um, trigger some kind of user um, 
isolation because maybe their device isn't compliant. So I want to apply some kind of a, you know, next generation firewall um, tag and permission, like role-based access control on that device. So maybe I got to quarantine the device, make sure it pulls in appropriate updates. And then actually, you know, once that re kind of um, evaluation of that device occurs and it's considered clean, uh, then it's brought back into the production network or the trusted network. So that's really a lot of what, and I'm grossly oversimplifying it, but that's a lot of what, you know, I, my focus was as a Scout systems engineer was in a pre-sales capacity working with integrations and the Comply to Connect initiative across DOD. Uh, so again, you know, making sure that vulnerability scans have occurred within a reasonable time on user endpoints, making sure that uh, devices are state compliant. Um, so that really kind of brought me into the compliance and auditing world of cybersecurity, uh, which that I should say that as well as Internet of Things and then operational technology. So, you know, my experience at Scout started at 2016, went through 2019, and that really was where, again, things like IoT became a serious threat. Um, and you started to really see the explosion of ransomware across businesses. And for a brief time, I was actually working outside of Department of Defense. And so I was working with regular commercial industry. I was also working with state and local education and just regular commercial enterprise. And it was just eye-opening how many people we would talk to that, uh, you know, would, would tell us eventually on the down low that, yes, we did have a ransomware attack. And again, we're going back at this point three, four, five years. And so if you were, in fact, hit with ransomware, it was definitely more of a novelty and more of a, you know, kind of, wow, okay, you know, like, Sorry to hear that. Not not expecting to hear that that was something that they actually did, in fact, experience. Um, and also just trying to work with them on some kind of a mitigation strategy to make sure that, you know, that that it would not happen again. Or or at least I should say we thought we could help protect them to have it not happen again. Um, but as anyone you know will tell you uh, or at least that's honest with you. You know, there's no such thing as something that's unhackable. There's no such thing as, you know, okay, you you use this, you deploy this, the security stack or whatever, and you know, you're impen impenetrable, or you know, you're you're not going to be um, a victim of ransomware again or something like that. But you at least layer on different types of things or improve their cybersecurity posture and hygiene um, to reduce that attack surface right and that's what it was all about and it still is um but you also started to have in the meantime a lot of companies that maybe were already invested into aws but were starting to adopt hybrid cloud so meaning you know they're already using aws but now maybe we're starting to use google cloud or we're starting to use uh, microsoft azure that was all, you know, really kind of at that time, 2016, 2019, it was, um, you know, businesses were really starting to make that leap. And so it just became, again, increasing the target um, and, and the, the target spread out there. Working with all these customers, it was really an incredible experience, um, again, also picking up on and kind of going down the operational technology um, track with our customers was incredibly interesting. So working with our critical infrastructure, energy grid companies, as well as the Department of Defense, um, that was really eye-opening and definitely will be a topic of a different podcast. Um, I'd even like to have certain people on that maybe are specialists in that area that can talk about that at, in greater length than I'm, probably I ever could. Um, but it just was really something that 
really kind of, again, kind of broaden my aperture. And, and I think that's what, I think that's what's so important about cyber is that, you know, you start out with simple concepts that are right down to like the user level, which then goes into naturally them plugging into a switch. So now I got to secure the switch, which then goes into the router. So I got to secure the router and so on and so on. Right. But there's just, it's, it's so much more than just securing the internal network. Obviously it's, it's now it's securing the internal network, the, the users, the, the cloud, um, the users, wherever they are. I mean, as COVID has all taught us now, people need to work from anywhere and everywhere and they need to do it securely. Um, so this is, you know, really where zero trust comes into play, which again, definitely a future podcast episode, but zero trust is just so important. And, and a lot of companies claim to do it. A lot of companies are parts of that puzzle of zero trust, but the reality is, is that so many customers or so many companies, um, and when I say companies, I mean actual end users of that zero trust technology just don't have it properly implemented because they're afraid to properly implement it. And what I mean by that is they're afraid to have those controlling actions that are automated done um, where, you know, yeah, I will kick a vice president off the network. I will kick um, an admiral off the network if they're not compliant or there's some kind of incident, right? And they, you know, they think that they're VIPs and that they should never have their internet access turned off. The reality is, is that they're, you know, probably one of the most targeted people uh, to try to get their credentials stolen or to try to just get some kind of, you know, leverage, uh, whether it's their access on the network, whatever it is. Um, you know, that that's the reality, but they don't want to hear it. And kind of no, mu- no matter how much you preach the cybersecurity best practices, um, you know, that that's where you just need to kind of, at the end of the day, the customers are, are going to make their own decisions. Uh, and you're there to advise and to guide and to help them with their, uh, with their actual implementation. But, uh, you know, if they make that decision that they're going to have all these kind of exceptions, then, you know, that inherently is accepting risk on their network. So um, just some of the real world experiences that I've had, definitely interesting, but um, yeah. So to close this out, um, going from now a systems engineer that focuses just on security, it's 2019 and you know I see the writing on the wall obviously that you know, if you really want to take your career to the next level as an engineer, you've got to become fluent in cloud. And some of my struggles with um, Forescout were that, you know, it was, it was primarily an on-premises type appliance and technology um, and, and kind of rightfully so because for so long, that's where, you know, the users and the control really needed to be was on-premises. But, you know, as, as any kind of person that maybe is going to work in a, in a vendor, like in an actual tech company that offers something like this, uh, will know and appreciate is that the industry moves so much faster than what the actual company that produces a product or a technology can support. So, you know, the customers were demanding, hey, we need cloud visibility, we need cloud control. And, you know, they did so for years, but it's a matter of having the in-house expertise, the product management, everything else to actually extend that platform into the cloud um, while also dealing with, you know, as they call tech debt. Um, So, you know, older versions of the code or whatever it is or the architecture that, you know, maybe, you know, if we were to just write a new software version of the application um, from scratch, it, we could support cloud, but now we're going to alienate and kind of push a, a, a huge portion of our existing customers out because now it's not going to be compatible for whatever reason with their older hardware and so on and so forth. 
Um, so those are all kind of the behind the scenes and under the hood type things that um, just made it a challenge for Forescout to kind of make that leap into the cloud. But they got there. Um, even while I was there, they got there. Um, but, you know, again, they were not a cloud native solution. And I really wanted to just go all in on cloud, started to really emphasize my studying and research on cloud, cloud technologies, cloud routing, cloud security, um, and started to go down that path again of, you know, here we go again, like studying for another certification. Uh, and in this case, it was the um, Google Cloud um, Certified Professional Cloud Architect. So I was actively, again, kind of similar to the Harris technology when I was trying to make the leap into network engineer and trying to get my CCNA. Um, I was, I'd say, about midway through my studies of trying to get that professional cloud network engineer, I'm sorry, uh, cloud professional cloud architect certification, but was able to get hired at Google um, and, you know, within, I'd say, I don't know, six months to a year, ended up getting that, that, um, that certification. But, you know, it just goes to show that no matter where you work and no matter how, you know, low on the totem pole or high on the totem pole or whether it's a small company or a huge company, um, certifications are just, they're just part of the game. They're part of what you need to do to, uh, if it's done correctly, establish that you do know some of the fundamentals about whatever it is, the technology that you're trying to study for, and you have demonstrated some capability of understanding the concepts and actually, you know, using, putting them in context and being able to work through scenarios um, does not make you an expert whatsoever. Um, there's plenty of people, as I'm sure we all know, that pass certifications, but then you try to ask them certain questions or whatever, and they just have no idea um, how to even approach the scenario. And it's not necessarily that they're not smart or that they cheated or something like that. It could just be seriously that they just don't have the real world experience yet. So they may have a certification, but until you really kind of get in the field, get hands on, so to speak, with whatever the uh, technology stack is, um, they may just not have that real world kind of experience that they're um, trying to rely on that you likely do in comparison. So um, anyway, you know, I, you'll notice that I talked about the importance of cybersecurity in terms of a master's degree. I still absolutely agree with that. That said, not everybody is, um, not everybody needs to go that route. Also, not everybody should go that route. Um, there's no reason to take on unnecessary debt, uh, for one thing. Um, but if you have the means to do it, I would certainly go for it. Um, just speaking very broadly at the same time you're going to have to continue to go the certification route it's not it's you know you can't get the master's degree and then say all right i don't need to do certifications anymore i got a master's degree well no um i mean clearly as you can see uh, my master's degree is um eight to ten years old now and so you know that's a point in time of concepts of technology and you know, the certifications, what they're able to help you achieve is continual learning. You have to be a lifelong learner to be in the cyber uh, world. It's just a matter of fact. So um, highly recommend that, again, um, you do go for a, a cyber master's degree if it makes sense. Um, if you're looking for especially maybe to just go real deep in something, um, that said, there's absolutely no harm at all in staying certifications only. Um, I can name countless people that have gone certifications only, have no advanced degree in anything related to cyber or IT, and they are extremely successful. So it's just, it's a matter of what your career goals are. That's really what it comes down to. Um, there really is no right or wrong answer. It's a matter of what you want to achieve in your career. And also, uh, and I say this half jokingly, how much debt you're willing to take on. Um, so 
Uh, that kind of wraps up my initial background. Um, you know, again, uh, I've been at Google now for three years. Uh, definitely we'll have to talk about it in different kind of tones and different, um, I can speak to different, different projects that I've been on in a general sense. Um, that said, um, you know, making that leap from Forescout into Google, uh, I'm extremely grateful for every single opportunity for every colleague that I ever worked with uh, throughout my career because I try to extract something from each of them about how to learn about my job or about my team or about the projects that I'm working on and how can I be successful? How can I make this project work? Um, so again, not only a student of a lifelong learner for certifications, but I think you have to take the approach of how do I be a lifelong learner with my colleagues? Uh, and then when you have the opportunity to try to give back um, because there's just this field has exploded again, and I'm happy to see it. It has exploded since uh, 2011 when I first started my, uh, or I'm sorry, 2012 when I first started my master's program. Um, but you've got to find a way to, to I think, give back um, because not only is it kind of uh, an affirmation that you understand certain concepts or, um, you know, you, that you're proving your knowledge um, kind of, and I mean that to yourself, uh, builds confidence in yourself, but it also just helps other people learn. And um, I was very, very, very grateful and, and um, I was very lucky to have key mentors in each part of my career that I was able to count on that would help kind of show me the way and whether that was to be successful or to do a good job or to avoid conflict or just whatever it was. And that'll definitely be a topic for another day. But um, you need to find a mentor and then when you can try to be that uh, mentee and um, give back. So it's, it's extremely valuable and it's something that I really love to do. So with that, we will wrap up today's initial first episode of the Cyber Careers blog. I want to thank you again for everyone for your time and really look forward to kind of growing this uh, individual site and community. Um, I'm hoping to do with this as I've done with other things in the past. I want this to become a platform where we can continue to learn from each other, uh, both through podcasts and listening to, to people and their perspectives and their work experience, as well as just sharing different things and um, ways to kind of improve your cyber career through the blog uh, that will be available on the blog rather. So thank you again for your time. And we're looking forward to having you listen to our next podcast. Thank you. This is Rob signing out. Bye. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to like and subscribe and share this podcast to your favorite social media platforms. Catch all the latest cybersecurity news and career advice on cybercareers.blog.